Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's April the 13th, 2022. Um, we're two years into COVID. I don't know if it's finished yet. Uh, certainly, hopefully, we're on its last chapter. Two of the biggest themes over the last couple of years as the show has gone daily has been the future of work and the office. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I did a show with my old friend Julia Hobsbawm on whether uh, the nowhere office will turn us into nowhere people. Julia's written an interesting book called The Nowhere Office about the reinvention of work and the workplace of the future. And the other theme that has come up time and time again is the question of how all this is going to affect cities. I uh, did a, a wonderful interview, two interviews actually, with two of our leading urbanists, Edward Glazer and David Cutler, uh, on their new book, well, not so new anymore, Survival of the City, Living and Thriving in an Age of Isolation. Um, uh, many of you are also familiar with Edward Glazer, who teaches at Harvard University. He wrote a, a best-selling book, Triumph of the City. And he talked to me about the evolution of city life in the age of COVID. And his co-author, David Cutler, who was uh, Obama's point person on healthcare, also discussed with me the rapid evolution, to use a, uh, an appropriate euphemism of 21st century city life. So there's cities and there's the office and how this has been affected by COVID is brought together in an intriguing new book called Going Remote by uh, a USC, very distinguished USC economics professor, uh, Matthew E. Kahn, how the flexible work economy can improve our lives and our cities. Um, and Matthew is joining us from the fair city of Los Angeles, just down the coast in California. Uh, Matt, welcome. I know that your book got blurbed by the great Edward Glazer. Is this what you're trying to do in growing remote, bringing together uh, the future of the city and the future of work, particularly in a post-COVID age? You've got it. I The book is set slightly in the future, but I hope it's not science fiction to anyone, that in, assuming that COVID is in our rear view mirror, a silver lining of the horrors of the last couple of years is we've experienced many privileged people who have had the privilege to work from home, have experienced what our life can be like. And I argue our imagination has been stretched out by this opportunity. So Andrew, what my book is about is a few years from now, it offers what I think are some insights and predictions of how workers, firms, and places will all be affected in the United States from the persistence of work from home. And I argue that this will create large gains uh, for many of us, including people who aren't eligible currently for work from home. We did a, an interesting show also um, earlier this week with uh, an economist, Elizabeth Pop Berman, who has suggested that Thinking Like an Economist might not be such a good idea. She has a new book out, Thinking Like an Economist, How Efficiency Replaced Equality in U.S. Public Policy. It's a critique of neoliberalism. I introduced you, uh, Matt, as an economics professor, but you're actually USC's provost professor, which means you're deeply 
interdisciplinary. You have a foundation in economics. It's part of, and I, I got the sense, it's part of going remote, you trying to liberate yourself of traditional economic thought and thinking about the city and the future of work in a more interdisciplinary manner. So, Andrew, you're right about that. Um, something I discuss with my mother, and she's a lawyer, is what are different people's conception of the good life? And in 2019, before COVID, who was in a superstar city like New York or San Francisco because they loved being there versus to have a short commute, a reasonable commute that you had to live there? And so, Andrew, the thought experiment of my book is when you're untethered, when you can decouple where you live from where you work, what new freedoms does that create to achieve your conception of the good life? If you have a sick mother in Missouri, if you love to ski, if you're a bit of a hippie who wants to follow the current Grateful Dead, how do you do your job and stay connected to your social network and to your passions? And if we're able to achieve this sort of diversification of our life portfolio, of how we spend our scarce time, I think this opens up new satisfactions that GNP and traditional macroeconomic statistics don't capture. So in that sense, I, I really like what you said about this interdisciplinary approach. But it hasn't worked so far, has it, Matt? I mean, it's not obviously your fault, but the, <laughs> the, the, um, the abstractness, the lack of tangibility of our cities and of work life has compounded inequality and, and lots of different kinds of inequality, economic inequality, racial inequality. We had Deverian Baldwin on the show talking about how universities, which tend to be idealized in certainly amongst uh, scholars when it comes to writing books, have actually in his book, In the Shadow of the Ivory Towers, created more and more inequality. I'm talking to you from San Francisco, which is the post-industrial dystopia um, of the 21st century. LA was always the post-industrial dystopia of the 20th century. Um, how can we get beyond the inequalities of our contemporary cities? Great question. Andrew, let me tell an optimistic story about Baltimore, Maryland, a city that I lived in for two years when I was teaching at Johns Hopkins. Something that I discuss in my book about Baltimore is Baltimore is a proud city that has lost a third of its population over the last 50 years as people have moved to the suburbs and have moved away from this city. Its population now sits at 600,000 people. I argue in my book that there are many talented African-Americans who love their city of Baltimore, but would love to be working in the tech sector. But in our old, in our previous non-work from home economy, you had to be in Seattle or Portland or Silicon Valley to work in tech. So, Andrew, a, a question for you on racial equality. You know, I tell a story in the book that in my future vision for Baltimore, that it can be partially a suburb of D.C. and Alexandria, Virginia, where Amazon HQ2 has located. And so I tell an optimistic story that Baltimore can be a home featuring much cheaper real estate prices than Washington, D.C., offering African-Americans' connection to their community and offering access to tech jobs going forward, even if these jobs are not in Baltimore. So I argue in the book, and I've been wrong before, that work from home will create this convexity when you unbundle where people live from where they work. Traditionally depressed cities with great histories and great traditions can have a renaissance as people who that's their thing move back there. 
You brought up one city beginning with B, Baltimore. So let me counter you with another one, Bozeman, that you also talk about in your book, Bozeman, Montana, which is the reverse, really, of Baltimore. It's been known, I think people joke about it, as uh, the eastern Los Angeles now in the sense that real estate prices are, are, are skyrocketing. It's attracting a young tech community. Um, that's, the, shall we say, the darker side, isn't it, Bozeman, of the world you're describing? where the wealthy will go from Silicon Valley to Bozeman. They'll spend their days working and their evenings in clubs or skiing. There's no guarantee that this dispersion of the workforce will create more equality. You are correct about that. In cities, in Ed Glazer's great book, Triumph of the City, he emphasizes that America's greatest cities like San Francisco, Boston, New York, haven't built enough housing in the boring language of economics that there's been an inelastic supply curve, sort of a zero-sum game for housing, and the rich are going to win the auction for those properties. I discuss in the book that in beautiful places, Bozeman, Boise, if these cities don't allow real estate developers to build, the same phenomena of gentrification you pointed out will occur. I optimistically argue that the U.S. is a big nation with a lot of land and that those places that welcome people, those places that want to become younger, that want to attract footloose, sophisticated people, that this will inject new life in these areas. These can be rural areas, that this is a way for certain areas to rejuvenate. But you're certainly right that the Glazer pessimism about the elitism of places engaging in nimbyism will create the next San Francisco in, in, in these paradises near these national parks like Bozeman. Yeah, and the other thing about your idea of the future of Baltimore is, I guess on the one hand, it is attractive. It allows African-Americans to continue to live in the city, perhaps of their birth and family, and not have to pay the rents or the real estate prices of Washington, D.C. or San Francisco. But doesn't that also represent a new kind of segregation? On one level, you're right. I hope that I'm from New York City and I see Brooklyn as a diverse, residentially integrated place with intermarriage. Andrew, you raise a very important point of whether work from home will further stratify America. It's my hope, but again, I've been wrong before, that if a stronger Baltimore emerges, let me play out a, a story of my book. If more middle-class people live in the center city of Baltimore, if the mayor has more tax revenue and can invest in the schools and policing, I think that more a more racially integrated city, which would still be majority African-American, but that more whites and Asians would live in the city and that there'd be more trust in a safer city with better quality of life. Now, your point that America could become more stratified is an important one. Um, and I, I think we should meet again on a podcast 10 years from now. I optimistically believe that, for example, Baltimore is a center of, of microbreweries. And one of my good friends and co-authors loves their microbreweries. And so there's certain features of Baltimore as a beautiful city with an improving waterway, Fells Point. There's many attractions that can help create racial integration if the city has more economic opportunity and role models living there. And what about San Francisco, where I'm talking to you from, um, Matt? I mean, how do we fix that? It seems to have 
captured all the worst things of 21st century urban work life or the divide between the two. Huge communities of uh, homeless people, massively expensive rents and real estate. Uh, the disappearance, the destruction of all civic values and public space. How, how does this one get fixed? A very important question. And my mother-in-law in Berkeley has asked me the same question. Oh, you got a mother-in-law. You got a mother in Ber- a mother-in-law in Berkeley and a mother in um, in, in New York City. In New York City, so you, you, I, I, I have to go you've remote. Won the bingo. You, you've, you've... <laughs> and I have a son in Chicago, and so we're holding a diversified portfolio on downtown San Francisco. I argue in the book that uh, if we think of the pyramid building, if we think of the Embarcadero, there's a huge buildup of commercial real estate in downtown San Francisco. I discuss in the book the option value of converting that into housing. Andrew, I hope that the mayor of San Francisco and the council consider having more flexible zoning codes, just as New York City turned manufacturing areas into industrial lofts, that something similar could occur in San Francisco, that in a work-from-home economy, if these tech people are increasingly mobile, you're going to attract the people who actually want to be in San Francisco, close to the Chinatown, the arts, the hippie ways of San Francisco. I love Yangtze when I can afford it downtown. That, that uh, I think I argue in the book that when we don't make our locational choices solely on commuting, you actually attract people with the spree de corps who really want to be there. The homeless issue in San Francisco is scary. With my slight neoliberal tendencies, I want to see the mayor of San Francisco experiment. Could there be private contracts to see how private contractors would provide housing to get people off the street and to get them the services they need? If the city's economy remains strong with great quality of life, there will be the tax revenue to provide the necessary resources for the homeless there. As you know, because of San Francisco's wonderful weather and tolerant government, the homeless have moved to this city. And there's very interesting issues of fiscal federalism in rewarding or compensating the city for the challenges it faces uh, for taking care of this large population. Yeah, as I said, I live in San Francisco on the edge of um, Golden Gate Park. It's one of the few public spaces still left in the city. We did a show with one of your Los Angeles neighbors, Donald Cohen, uh, very much uh, a man committed to the the public good and did a show last week, How the Looting of Public Goods is Destroying American Democracy. Has a new book out, The Privatization of Everything, How the Plunder of Public Goods Transformed America and How We Can Fight Back. I think you'd find an interesting book, Matt. Um, How essential is this seizing back, if that's the right term, of public space and public goods if we are to save the 21st century American city? So one idea I explore in the book is if, 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 if the relevance of our commute declines for work-from-home workers, then we can live in areas where we want to be. And Andrew, a, 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 a conjecture about democracy. If people live in areas that they're committed to, committed environmentalists, committed rural people who have employment while working from home, I claim, and I talk about Robert Putnam's bowling alone, if we live in areas where we want to be, will we invest more of our time and effort in civic engagement? And so my wife and I have done work on social capital and when are people good citizens? And a conjecture in the book 
is when we're living, when we live where we want to be versus where we have to be for work considerations, I claim we're going to be better citizens because we're locked in in promoting the greater good. But that's another hypothesis. Well, it's an interesting one and as credible as, as any other uh, hypothesis. Certainly, we're, you are writing about a world in which work is dramatically changing and community is in crisis and we have more and more, it seems, isolation and separation and loneliness. I did a, a show with, I don't know if you're familiar with her work, it's very interesting. She's a UC sociologist, um, UC Berkeley sociologist, she may be a neighbor of your mom, Carolyn Chen. She has a new book out, Work, Pray, Code, When Work Becomes Religion in Silicon Valley. Um, she's also done some research on banks on the East Coast, and she's suggesting that in our spiritual, broad spiritual crisis in America, which, of course, Putnam, more than anyone else, outlined many years ago, we've had him on the show. The one thing that's certain or, or remains certain is work. And the Googles, maybe not the Facebooks, but the Googles and the PayPals and the uh, Amazons of the work, they provide security and identity. Does that resonate at all, Matthew, in terms of your vision of the future? Work and the office, not so much the physical office, but the firm, the corporation, in some ways competing or perhaps replacing the church. So what my mother and I have talked about is the gig economy. And so if work from home workers feel detached from the organization and don't feel the spray de corps that they're connected to a mission, um, th there can be issues. There's freedom, like a free agent, but there also could be anomie of just key sociology concepts. Andrew, something I discuss in the book is emotionally intelligent managers at these firms. I argue in the book, Ed Glazer, in his great triumph of the city and in his peer-reviewed work, has emphasized the importance of face-to-face -face interaction in making us people and making us stronger. I argue in my book that face-to-face -face interaction will continue, but there's quality versus quantity of going to the mothership office a couple of days a month and being on your A-game then and meeting with your managers and huddling versus being at the office every day like a Dilbert. But I think we both know, and we learned unfortunately during COVID, that if you're locked in your basement for long periods of time, that's not good for your mental health or for your productivity. But I would argue that managers of for-profit firms with access to big data and seeing that they're losing young workers, they can use their big data to see whether their HR practices are helping them to achieve their goals or whether they need to experiment to see how to set up the rules of the game of remote work such that workers are happy, productive, and feel that, that their work is meaningful. But coming back to this issue of remote work, do you think it will? It, it could make workers, it's, it's not going to do away with work. We're certainly not going to live in a post-work age, certainly not in the, 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 the near-term future. Um, could it make work more meaningful? Or, or could it appear to make work more meaningful? Does it collapse home life and the office so that everything becomes like the office, the internet, and the iPhone has already done a lot of that. So I hear you. I want to gently push back with three different stories. My 20-year-old son... You don't have to be gentle with me, Matthew. <laughs> My 20-year-old son is really not eager to ever work from home again. He wants everything the young want. Uh, in, in being face-to-face -face in the big city. My 80-year-old parents, my mother in New York City is still a lawyer in New York, and she loved that she didn't have to get onto the subway on cold days, and she didn't have to put on 
as much makeup to get ready for her day and that she had access to her bathroom and her things. So for older workers, it's incredibly convenient. Andrew, another hypothesis in my book, and you, you asked a great question about blending family life and work life, is for people with young children, and often it's women staying at home when children are young. But of course, I understand that men could be equally child supporting. I argue in the book that work from home could create this possibility of part-time work and could help women to remain engaged in the workplace. And if firms anticipate that many women are not going to opt out in the future, that they will be more mentored. And I argue that the wage, the gender gap could actually decline. Yeah, we've talked a lot about the gender gap. We had Claudia Goldin, another distinguished economist on the show, her famous book, of course, Career and Family, Women's Century Long Journey Towards Equity. You're suggesting that that century long journey towards equity could continue in in a post office world. So in Claudia's great work, she argues that being a veterinarian, being a pharmacist, being a school teacher, that these have been strategies helping women to balance family and work. Building on Professor Golden's great, great work, I argue in my book that, that each of us is different and work from home celebrates our diversity. If I have a two-year-old child who I'm home with and this kid naps a few hours a day, I can work those hours and be a productive worker with balance and help my mental health, raise my family's income and feel productive and not chained to the house for those who, who, who feel that they're not achieving all their life goals. And so this continuity in life, Andrew, you were right that this blurs the work-life distinction. But I think that that will be exciting for those who can opt into this, who did not have this option before the rise of work from home. Uh, Matt, you've done a lot of writing on um, on the environment. You had a book in 2006, uh, Green Cities. Uh, you had something coming out or came out uh, uh, last year, in March, Adapting to Climate Change. Uh, you have a book about unlocking the potential of post-industrial cities in an environmental sense. You've even written something on uh, the environment in, in China, Blue Skies Over Beijing. Um, we, of course, have done many shows on the environment. We had Eugene Linden, for example, on the show last week, who's a climate optimist, but says that things are pretty tough out there in his new book, Fire and Flood. From your point of view, um, as an authority on not just the city, the future of the city and the future of work, but also someone who's written a lot and thought a lot about the environment, what do we need to be particularly concerned with? So I am very concerned about the climate change challenge. For example, these fires in the American West that so polluted your San Francisco air a few summers ago, I believe that these issues of fires will grow worse. For those, uh, an example of how work from home helps us to adapt to these challenges. If there's someone who's asthmatic and has been working for a company located in a fire zone, if that company remains in that area, such a worker can now work remotely and not be around there during the fire season. So Andrew, that's an example of adapting to predictable risks like summer fires. In the economics, in the urban economics of adapting to climate change, there are risks of extreme heat, risks of drought, risks associated with sea level rise. As climate scientists make progress mapping these risks, I believe, and I'm working with a company, Redfin, who 
competes against Zillow as an internet platform. Companies are going to advertise this information. Uh, 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 the Zillow and Redfin selling homes, they reveal what are walkable neighborhoods, what are neighborhoods with high crime, good schools. They're beginning to post data on flood risk and fire risk. And that allows home buyers to make a more informed decision. And work from home workers have more flexibility for where they live. And so if you're asthmatic, you locate a way from a fire zone with elevated PM 2.5. If you are a highly risk averse person, you don't bid for housing in flood zones. And so this education of the American consumer about new risks in a more flexible work from home economy helps us to adapt to these very scary climate risks that I'm, that scare me. I'm not convinced by that. I have to admit, Matt, as you know, in California, everyone seems to be moving or at least talking of moving in the place, the two places that people especially in Silicon Valley, are moving to Austin, Texas, and Miami, Florida. But Miami, we've done shows on the imminent environmental apocalypse there, and yet everyone's moving there. So people aren't quite as rational, as reasonable, as informed as you're suggesting, are they? So what I'd like to know, and I want to do research on exactly your point, for the people who are moving to a flood zone, are they moving to a condominium building and buying on an upper floor? Have they done their homework on the civil engineering of that building? In Andrew, in my academic work, I have asked, who's the adult in the room? If people are behavioral and a little bit like Homer Simpson from The Simpsons and not like Mr. Spock from Star Trek, I have argued that banks that lend money to these individuals and insurers can be the adults in the room. Right, Lyndon, uh, yeah, sorry to interrupt there. Um, Eugene Lyndon, you should look at his book too, because he talks a lot about the insurance industry and in his view, at least its central role in, in, in trying to fix this problem. I, I agree with him. And so, Andrew, where I think you're taking me, and I think it's a very important point, I argue in my book, that more and more Americans are going to be footloose. And you're asking the great question, are they going to move to higher ground or are they going to double down on mistakes we've made, putting more pressure on our Congress to bail them out? And if the insurance industry is the adult in the room, I'm more optimistic about using price signals to, to nudge them to higher ground and to low, less fire risk areas. But Eugene's work sounds very important. Yeah, I do fear the dystopian future of a place like Miami, where you have the wealthy tech community living in well-protected, environmentally well-protected high-rises and a Blade Runner-like world where everybody else is living. Uh, it's sort of like a post-Katrina uh, New Orleans on, on steroids. So I, I don't quite know what we do. Maybe... Um, Maybe, Matthew, uh, you can you can begin to fix this. Maybe it can be a subject of your new book. But certainly, um, it's a wonderful conversation, going remote, how the flexible work economy can improve our lives and our cities. Your relentless optimism is intoxicating and perhaps catching, maybe even cheered me up a little bit. Um, in addition to your new book, uh, Matt, what else should people be reading in, uh, in mid-April 2022? So... A great economist, John List, and a co-author published a book, The Voltage Effect, which takes a look at when nerds um, identify a good idea, um, a, an intervention that improves our quality of life, uh, perhaps a successful charter school that helps minority kids uh, get into the Ivy League. Can we easily scale that up 
for millions of young people. And that's called the voltage effect. And so John List has written a really good book on the lessons he's learned of when from a small pilot experiment, can we learn that you can extrapolate and then roll this out to millions of people? And of, and of course, this is easier said than done, but I think that's a brilliant book. And yeah, I'll have to get him. Do you know him? Yes. And Maybe. I, I'd be happy to introduce you. And he is very eager to, to, to talk about his work. And then the, the second book, and I realize that this is perhaps not what professors talk about, is The Soprano Sessions. This, this book that I'm rereading by Martin Zoller Seitz and, and Alan Siepenwald, that when I watch The Sopranos, I'm sort of an action plot guy. And while, while my mother-in-law has a PhD in, in Italian studies, there was all this nuance to The Sopranos, these dream sequences that I didn't understand at all. And this literary criticism about The Sopranos just shows me that I'm not a sophisticated reader. And so it's been very interesting to read that. Well, I always end with this, Matthew. Um, who runs the world? And you're not allowed to say either your mother or your mother-in-law or your wife or your son. Anyone but those. So in Los Angeles, it's LeBron James as we figure out how to get these Lakers to be stronger and relevant again. <laughs>